Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to the Arizona Council of the Blind 2022 State Convention. My name is Chris Desbro. I'm Vice President of the Arizona Council, and I am pleased and thrilled to be able to welcome you all here today to what I am sure will be a very informative and very exciting program that we have laid out for you over the next day and a half. Thank you all for taking the time to join us. Thank you for being here. Can't wait for you all to enjoy the program that we have. As we begin, I'd like to initially introduce to you the members of the Arizona Council Board. As I say, my name is Chris Desborough, Vice President, and we'll then move through our board so they can introduce themselves. My name is Lindsay McHugh. I am the board secretary. My name is George Martinez. I am the treasurer and outgoing. Hi, everybody. I'm Melanie Sanoe from Phoenix, and I am one of the uh, directors on our board. I am. Hello, I'm Ted Chittenden, and I'm one of the chapter representatives of the Arizona Council of the Blind Board of Directors, and I'm here with the Phoenix chapter. Hi, everyone. My name is Jordan Lopezanski, and I am vice president of the Tucson chapter. And I do, again, want to say welcome to everyone. Thank you. And as George mentioned there at the beginning, I think it's very important to note that we are having members of our board are stepping away. Some have turned out, some are retiring, and it's time to acknowledge their service that they have given to the Arizona Council over the past few years. First of all, to George. George has been our treasurer. He has been a stalwart for the past seven years. He has held on and he has done an amazing job with managing the Arizona Council's uh, finances and keeping us very truly well on track. To say that George has, has, has earned his retirement is an understatement. So George, on behalf of the council, thank you. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for being such a loyal servant and for taking care of our finances. And please, please enjoy your well-earned retirement, which I know you're running into with your arms open and embracing. So thank you very much, George. We really appreciate your service. Secondly, to our secretary, Lindsay McHugh. Lindsay has been secretary now for uh, four years of the Arizona Council, I believe. I believe it's at least four years, and um, she is turning out. Lindsay, you've done a great job taking care of our minutes and making sure you're always on top of that. Um, Thank you for your service to the council. Thank you for being so diligent. And um, I'd like to take this opportunity to um, wish you the very best in your future endeavours and your PhD um, studies. I know you're going to have your hands full with that, and you will be successful. But thank you very much for your service. Good luck with your PhD. Also, I need to mention that our president, John McCann, who will be joining us momentarily, we're having some technical issues. John is turning out. And um, I'd like to, on behalf of um, our board and our members, not only obviously thank all those board members who are leaving us, but also a special thank you to John. John took over as president He had to finish off the previous president's um, term, Jeff Bishop, and then he rolled into his own two terms. 
I'd like to um, extend a personal thanks to John for all that he's done for his service to the Arizona Council. Um, he has been a great servant to the council. He is an incredibly strong advocate for the rights of the blind and the visually impaired, not only in Arizona, but John has been very involved and continues to be very involved at national level. We are very lucky that we have him here in Arizona. So on behalf of the board and myself, I'd like to thank John McCann very much for all that he has done for the council and all that he will continue to do and for his service. So thank you very much. And also very finally to Ted, to Jordan and Mel. Appreciate you guys willingness to serve. Thank you as always for being on the board. Thank you for all that you bring and thank you for all that you do. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. Everyone, Lindsay McHugh and I, um, this is Melanie Sanoe, have had the pleasure of being the co-chairs for the Arizona Convention Committee this year. And we are so excited to share this program with you. We've had some real blue ribbon winning presentations coming your way. We felt, especially with the state of the world that we're in these days, we wanted to have a program that specialized around the concept and the theme of speaking to be heard. We know that we speak and we aren't heard all the time. We know that we, in general, sometimes listen to respond. We don't listen to hear. So the concept in this theme and how we put this program together this year is we wanted to give the tools and the scenarios, the cases to make our voice not necessarily louder, but more meaningful and more purposeful. And that's why you'll see if you've gone through the program already, you see that we're going to hear from our Secretary of State, Secretary Hobbs. Uh, we have some sessions on advocacy and how to advocate in Arizona, how to advocate outside of Arizona. Uh, we have some sessions on how to advocate for yourself and how to speak up with your friends and family and coworkers and how to make your voice heard. So we really took that concept of speaking to be heard uh, to heart in planning um, the next two days. And then some of that speaking to be heard is uh, celebrating a win on game night. I'm going to yell to be heard yes. um, when I because, win a million dollars. Yeah, because this is Lindsay and I'll be hosting Who Wants to Be a Millionaire Zoom style. So join us at 530. <laughs> and that's tonight. So um, I'll hand it over to Lindsay, but I just wanted to say welcome, uh, give some thought behind how we came up with this concept this year and, and really listen to that concept of speaking to be heard. So thank you, Melanie. Mel and I are going to be your masters of ceremonies for the next two days, introducing our the sponsors and the sessions. And uh, in addition to having the sponsor videos and the sessions, we also thought it would be good to hear the voices of the people who have been part of AZCB for a while and want to share how being part of the organization has impacted their lives and their existence and uh, what we can do for others in terms of being there for each other, advocating and not just existing, but thriving as people with vision loss. So then also coming up at 5.30, uh, I'm gonna host Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And we have a great program for you, so stay tuned. Perfect timing, Lindsay. Deb, John is in the audience. It is my honor and privilege to introduce you or to welcome you to 
our 2022 convention. Uh, we have uh, some exciting things planned. You've already been briefed on some of that. First of all, I want to acknowledge, and I don't even really have time to bring up my notes file, but so I hope I remember all of this. This has been a rather arduous task, but it's nice to know that uh, it, that it's all coming to fruition. I want to acknowledge any number of people. Uh, first of all, the convention host committee in its entirety. So ably co-chaired by Melanie Altsinoe and Lindsay McHugh. Um, on program, we had Chris Despero. Public relations was Gail Elaine Wilt. Sponsorships was Ron Brooks. And then that was no mean undertaking. We did very well with sponsorships this year. And um, uh, our door prizes uh, are, have, are being handled by uh, Ron's spouse, Lisa Brooks. So you can look forward to that. And uh, there was one other thing there. Uh, oh, of course, game night. That's going to be Lindsay McHugh and Kyla Allen. So we're excited about that. I want to give a big shout out to Michael Babcock. Without his able assistance, this convention surely wouldn't be happening. Also to the ACB Media team. And I want to say to folks that uh, you can listen to us on ACB Media 8. And if you need any special help with that, well, reach out to me, I guess, at john at jamsite.net. Special thanks to our sponsors. We had two gold sponsors. Those would be Democracy Live and Arizona Center for the Blind and Vision Impaired. We had three. Uh, those are platinum sponsors. Excuse me. Those are platinum sponsors. Our gold sponsors, there were three of those. Arizona Advocacy, the Direct Advocacy and Resource Center of Arizona, Waymo, uh, who does uh, is in the uh, autonomous vehicle space, and uh, Suntown. Now Suntowns is is a silver, as is Arizona, oh, no. Colorado, Arizona Petroleum Products. Arizona. The other the other one with Arizona Industries, exactly. So okay. And wanted to give a special thanks again to meet people of the ACB media team. That would be Cecilia Nipper, of course, Deb Cook-Lewis, who's uh, just unmuted me so I can actually give these remarks to you. I think, And all of our hosters, I don't necessarily know them by name or who's hosting at any given time. And I think that just about covers it. If there's anything that Melanie or Andrew Lindsay that you think that I need that I've been remiss. I did want to mention our last silver sponsor was Arizona Petroleum Products. Right. I thought I mentioned them. I think they're Colorado and Arizona. But uh, I also have the sad duty to um, apprise that the person who got us that sponsorship, Colleen Crowninshield, I just received word that she'd passed away. You know, that's, that's obviously very sad news. We were really looking forward to her contributions on the Public Relations Committee. She was uh, really, really an enthusiastic new member. We had 75 registrants some from the Foundation for Blind Children, from, from the Arizona Arizona Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And we have 10 folks here from the Arizona Department of Economic Security. So we did well in that department. And hopefully people are enjoying us, those who elected not to register as such, but are following us on ACB Media 8. A big shout out to you folks. This afternoon, I will make further attempts to get in in a, in a, in a better way where you can actually see me on video, though those that can't see me. Yeah, I got dressed up so nice, too. Okay, it's a little after 1220. I don't know. We uh, have something coming on at 1225, and then it will be time for me to announce our keynote, or will it not? Yes. 
Okay. So everybody, in a few minutes, we will have Arizona Secretary of State, um, Secretary Katie Hobbs. She'll uh, give us about a half hour presentation, and then there will be a 15 minute Q&A. I just want to say a few introductory words here. Our guest speaker, our keynote, really, is someone I had the pleasure of meeting in June of 2019 in the wake of this organization's having passed a resolution on accessible voting. It was my pleasure to visit the uh, uh, our current Secretary of State in her office and her assistant at that time, Samuel Duell, and a, a very, very competent legislative assistant that she had at the time. We spoke about accessible voting, and there were some concerns that she raised, and th- these concerns or the, her stance in this was actually very much vindicated by how things played out in 2020, and I won't say over much about that, but it was her feeling that uh, we needed some legislation in order to bring to fruition the accessible voting that we are very much in support of and are ad- have been advocating for. We did luck out this year. I can characterize it that way. We have the passage of uh, legislation, which I guess is going by the Senate bill number SB 1638, which has now passed our state legislature and was signed into law by Governor Ducey on April 22nd. So we now have the statutory predicate for bringing accessible voting truly to fruition here in Arizona. But I want to let you know that the Secretary of State has always been philosophically in support of this. And there's really nothing much more I can say except uh, to welcome you, uh, Secretary Hobbs. And um, let's see. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Arizona Secretary of State, the Honorable Katie Hobbs. Thank you, John, so much for that introduction. Thank you so much for having me here today. It is such an honor to speak with all of you at your annual conference. As Secretary of State, I'm the Chief Elections Officer in Arizona, and my office is responsible for certifying voting devices, election results, candidates, and ballot measures. Lobbyists, as well as federal legislative and congressional candidates file campaign finance and expenditure reports with my office as well. And so even though our office receives a lot of attention for our work in elections, we're responsible for so much more. Uh, So just a quick overview of the Secretary of State's office. Through our business services division, the Secretary of State's office has been supporting Arizona businesses since 1912. And the services we provide include recording business partnerships, registering trade names and trademarks and issuing certificates of registration, and registering telemarketers and veterans charitable organizations. We're in the business of helping business do business in Arizona, and we take that responsibility very seriously. The Arizona State Library Archives Public Records and Capitol Museum are also part of the Secretary of State's office, and through these divisions, we provide access to information about our government, our state, and our world, and we're developing a number of outreach-focused programs for many different communities. We're also constantly updating exhibits and have added a permanent exhibit honoring the historic contributions of women in Arizona. Within the state library, some of you might be familiar with this program, we have the Arizona Talking Book Library. 
This library serves people with low vision, those who may be unable to hold or handle a print book, and people who have a perceptual or reading disability. Among the things that they lend are audiobooks and magazines, movies with audio descriptions, braille books and magazines by postage free mail, and audio and braille book downloads. When I got to the Secretary of State's office in 2019, we were really focused on rebuilding the public's trust and confidence in our office. And it became quickly apparent that in order to do this, we needed to focus on both the people working in the office and those working with the office. So working to build those outside partnerships. And I've continued to be so impressed with the many dedicated, talented people on staff who are committed to public service. They have certainly kept their noses to the grindstone to ensure continuity in the services that we provide. As you might imagine, offices that are led by an elected official can sometimes experience a lot of disruption when those uh, administrations transition after election years. And the staff in our office has really kept at it in spite of the many challenges that we've faced, including the pandemic and in the aftermath of the folks who tried to continue to sow doubt in the 2020 election and the election systems we have in place in Arizona. So as I previously mentioned, we are mostly well known for our work in elections. And I'm sure you're well aware that we're just a few months away from the August primary here in Arizona. So I'm going to spend a little time talking about engaging in that election. And I'll start with voter registration. Certainly want to encourage everyone here uh, who's able to register to vote to make sure that you are registered or make sure that your voter registration is up to date. So in order to be registered to vote in Arizona, you have to be a United States citizen. Uh, You have to be a resident of Arizona and the county that's listed on your voter registration. And you have to be 18 years of age or older on or before the day of the next regular general election, which this year is November 8th of 2022. And so Arizona has pre-registration available. So if somebody is 17 now, but they'll be 18 on November 8th of 2022, they can go ahead and register to vote now and just make sure that that is taken care of before we get to the election. There are several ways that you can register in Arizona. First of all, the most convenient way is online at servicearizona.com. And you can do this if you have an Arizona driver's license or an Arizona non-operating ID card that's issued by the motor vehicle division. You can register by mail by either printing off a form online or requesting a form from your county recorder. And then after completing that form, send it back to your county recorder's office. Or you can register in person by visiting your county recorder's office, getting a form and filling it out in person. And a lot of the county, the county recorders are the registrar of voters. And a lot of times they'll be out in the community at different events and have voter registration tables available at those events. So that's another way to register in person. And then we encourage people to make sure that their voter registration is up to date all the time because it avoid it will help you avoid having something out of date on your voter registration and then trying to vote in the election and not being able to. So you should be sure to update your voter registration if you have recently moved to a new address, if your name has been legally changed, 
or you'd like to change your political party affiliation. And then just so you're aware, there are voter registration deadlines. Once you're registered, you don't have to re-register. You're registered for good unless you have to, you know, make an update for any of those issues I just mentioned. But in order to participate in an upcoming election, you have to be registered before the deadline for that election. So for this August primary, the deadline is July 5th. So roughly 30 days before the election. If you miss that deadline, you can still register anytime you want to. You just won't be able to participate in that election. And then the next deadline will be 30 days before the November 8th election in November. And then also we have primaries that the election in August is a primary, and those are where the party members nominate the candidates who are going to represent their party in the general election. But if you're registered, not with a political party, but as an independent, you can still vote in the primary. You just have to contact your county recorder and let them know which partisan ballot you want, whether it's Democrat or Republican. You don't have to change your party affiliation. And you only need to do this for the primary. For the general election, everyone who lives in the same geographic area gets the same ballot. There's different ballots for different districts, but you don't have to worry about what party you are in the general election. And so I think now it's more important than ever just to make sure that you are registered to vote. I think democracy really is at stake in this upcoming election. Since 2020, we have seen aggressive attempts to undermine our democracy. And I just want to be clear when I say that election officials are working day and night to ensure that our elections are secure, fair, and transparent. There's a lot of people out there working to sow doubt in our election systems and in the people who oversee them. And I want to assure you that we're doing everything we can to uphold the integrity of our elections and ensure that there is security. And we came into this office in 2019, just really focus on building a culture of security, eating, sleeping, and breathing election security. And that culture of security really permeates every aspect of the election process. And that includes working to reduce political obstacles that might distract from our ability to meet our goals, such as all of the misinformation right now that is sowing doubt in the election processes. We have instituted monthly security meetings with each of the counties to find ways to support their election security efforts. As you are probably aware, my office oversees elections, but they're actually administered by each county. And so working in collaboration with them is really important for maintaining election security. Just last month, our office hosted a statewide tabletop exercise. This is actually an award-winning exercise. So it's an exercise in crisis management uh, for election officials where they were put through simulated events that could occur before and on election day. And the purpose of this really is to make them go through the worst case scenario of what could happen and have plans in place to mitigate and prevent those things from happening. Each county administering elections also has an internal security protocol to deter and detect tampering. And this is part of larger overall security protocols that are in place to protect our elections. And unfortunately, what we have seen, especially in the last couple of years, is that one of the biggest threats facing our democracy is mis- and disinformation. 
and this is a threat to the security of our elections. Among the countless attacks that we've seen against election processes is to undermine vote by, voting by mail, which is used by 80 to 90 percent of the electorate in Arizona. My office is even being sued to eliminate early voting, even though it's how the majority of Arizonans vote. Despite what these people want to claim, voting by mail is safe, accessible, and secure. Early ballots are treated exactly the same way ballots that are voted in person are. Every early ballot is authenticated through a rigorous signature verification process conducted by trained election officials. Every ballot is tracked and audited before and after every election, and all ballots are stored in a secure area with limited access and tracked in a secure database. A little bit about accessibility. Voting machines are also kept under rigorous chain of custody arrangements where there is limited access and they're stored in a secure area. And so um, if you're going to the polling place, a lot of times you might be voting on one of these accessible machines. We in Arizona provide options for voters who need accommodations during the early voting period and on election day. So if you want to vote from home, you can request a large print or a braille ballot. And if you want to vote in person, polling locations are going to have an accessible voting device that allows you to make your selection independently through the use of an audio function and touchpad. After a voter makes their selections, your ballot is printed and this printed copy is then used to cast your ballot and it's kept on file for auditing and archive purposes. The devices that are utilized for accessible voting are federally and state certified, and they're tested for accuracy before and after every election. One of the things we've been really focused on, in addition to election security, is working to help ensure that marginalized communities are finding their voice in the legislative process, especially when it comes to bills that are going to make it harder for people to vote. So while our office cannot write or pass laws, we've supported legislation that supports marginalized communities, much like the bill that John mentioned with the voting portal. Earlier this year, my office made several recommendations that I had hoped the legislature would consider as we headed into the 2022 legislative sessions and the upcoming 2022 elections. What we were focused on in in those proposals was increasing voter access and ensuring an inclusive democracy by implementing things like same-day voter registration so that that voter registration deadline I talked about doesn't matter, Uh, extending early voting, so giving people more options to vote before election day, and automatic restoration of voting rights for formerly incarcerated individuals who've paid their debt to society. Unfortunately, our current legislature hasn't listened to our calls for meaningful election reform, and instead we've seen countless new bills and laws going in the opposite direction, limiting a voter's access to the ballot. So I'm glad the bill that you supported was passed and signed into law because it's the rare exception that this legislature has put forth to actually increase voter access. This is a trend that is absolutely concerning to me and to my office, but it certainly motivates us to continue fighting 
And we're not going to stand down from protecting our democracy. Participating in your democracy does involve voting, but that's not the only thing. Also through getting involved in the legislative process, promoting measures that could significantly improve access to the ballot. And so I would encourage all of you to contact your legislators because when more people are able to participate in our democracy, then I know that we'll have a state and a government that meets the needs of everyone. And I'm sure that your organization keeps you up to date on those legislative issues that matter to your communities. I fundamentally believe that democracy is a partnership and it needs all of us. And it only works well when we all participate. I'm again, so honored to be here today at your conference. And thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity. Thank you so much, Secretary Hobbs. We deeply appreciate that, all that you've shared with us. Melanie, are you going to take it from here for the Q&A? Absolutely. Thank you, Secretary Hobbs. We are going to open it up for a little bit of Q&A, and I know that I believe Chris Despero is going to pull the first question. I'll bring the second one up, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Melanie, thank you very much. Secretary Hobbs, thank you. Thank you for being here. My name is Chris Desborough, and I'm Vice President of the Arizona Council. I'm very grateful for your time today. Thank you for being here. You mentioned about the 2020 election. And I'd really be interested if you could maybe give us a little peek behind in the hours and days after that election. The federal government was obviously calling into question the integrity of the election that you and your office had just overseen. The eyes of not only the country were on your office, but I can assure you the eyes of the world were on your office. I'm sure you're aware. I'm originally from the UK and I was watching some British coverage of the election and your office was all over British TV as well. What was that like for you? What was it like in those hours and days after the election with everything that was going on? How was it for you, your family and also your staff as well? What was it like? Thank you for that question. So first of all, when I got to this office in 2019, we knew that Arizona was sort of emerging as an important battleground state. And when it came down to it, the 2020 election, at least on the presidential level, came down to Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona. This is a new position for us to be in. And so I knew that our office and everything we did in the conduct of the election would be under increased scrutiny, and we needed to get it right, um, not just because of that increased scrutiny, but obviously we have an obligation to get it right for the voters of our state. And I am so confident in everything that we did, working with the county election officials, making sure that the election really went off without a hitch, despite the challenges of the pandemic. And at the end of the day, I would say that the pandemic wasn't even our greatest challenge. It was these evidence-free allegations made by the former president and his allies. Because of Arizona being a swing state, all the national reporters were focused on who's going to be the first to finish counting their votes and when can we call this presidential election? And they had us all on in regular rotation. And it was a little bit overwhelming. I just kind of sat at my 
desk and went from MSNBC to CNN to BBC or whoever, I was like, okay, what's next? But I think people really just wanted information. They wanted to know what's going on. But at the same time that all this was happening and we were providing as up-to-date of information as we could about when the votes would be finally counted in Arizona, there were also just these increased spewing, for lack of a better word, of allegations of things that were not done well. And you might be familiar with Sharpie gate, which was a thing which people claimed that they were given Sharpies purposefully to miss, to invalidate their ballots. And when in fact the Sharpies were the marking device recommended by the tabulating manufacturers because the ink dries quickly and it won't come up the machines. And this was primarily in Maricopa County and the ballots are designed in a way that if you make a mark on one side and it bleeds through to the other side, it's not going to affect your votes on the other side of the ballot. But nobody who was making these kind of claims really cared about the accurate information. They were just trying to sow doubt. And that continued. We had nine post-election challenges that the state successfully defended. All of the challenges were thrown out of court because there wasn't evidence to support the claims that were made. And it was really sort of a storm to the point where they showed up at Maricopa County, a huge mob of armed protesters led by such national figures as Alex Jones, who none of what they were saying was accurate. They were actually, um, the, the activity they were engaged in was really interfering with the election workers in the county offices trying to finish their job. And then they showed up outside of my house. And for a while, I had police protection from the state department of public safety. And those threats have continued. They continued when the Senate launched their sham audit of the Maricopa County elections. And I had security again during that period of time. And it's just been really this point of being ground zero for a lot of this national election denial, which the six swing states I mentioned are going to continue to be hotbeds for that activity for the next foreseeable future. So yeah, it was a little bit crazy. And it seems like years ago, and it really was just not that long ago. And we're headed into that election again. And I think the thing I'm most worried about is I know I have utter confidence and every voter in the state of Arizona should have confidence in our election systems and the people that oversee them. But I know that there's those who want to continue to undermine that. And they're going to undermine it in even worse ways now, because I'm not only the Secretary of State charged with overseeing the elections in our state, but I'm also on the ballot myself. And that's going to fuel these allegations even more. I understand. Secretary Hobbs, thank you very much. And um, I appreciate your service and your integrity to um, security of our state's elections. Thank you very much. All right. Hi, Secretary Hobbs. My name is Melanie Sanoe. Um, I am the co-chair of Arizona's Convention Committee. I want to say welcome. Thank you for being here. And it was a pleasure working with your office. So give them a pat on the back. <laughs> Our theme for convention this year is speaking to be heard. Mm -hmm. And I know, especially being younger, the whole legislative ecosystem, all of that is incredibly intimidating. What do you think is one of the most effective ways that we can be heard? Well, I always recommend to people who, especially who are trying to get involved in the legislative process for the first time, because I know how intimidating it can be. I was on that side of things before I ever thought about running for the legislature. And you don't have to go it alone. Your council has people who are actually 
actively engaged in the legislative process. And I'm hopeful that they're they're informing your members of how that they can be engaged. And I think there's often even a legislative day where your members can participate with the council to meet with their legislators and advocate for specific pieces of legislation. And that's how so many people get involved in the process. When I was new at this, I was getting involved through an organization called PAFCO, which focused on health and human services issues and making sure that there was budget support for safety net programs in Arizona. There's every kind of issue that you can imagine has an advocacy group, and very often they're pulling those advocacy groups together to have a day at the Capitol where their members can focus on their issues with their legislators, and they don't have to go it alone there with that group. And so I think that's the best way to get involved is find out if you have a legislative committee or the folks who lead that effort to make sure that your issues are are being heard at the legislature. Great. Thank you for that. And thank you for your service to Arizona. Thank you. Uh, Desi, do you want to look for some raised hands in our audience? We don't have any raised hands in the audience right now, but Ted Chittenden has his hand raised on the panelist's side. Thank you. I received a little card mm-hmm. in the mail that says, you are a registered voter. It gives my name, says you are a registered voter in the state of Arizona. Now, my assumption is that this will be used, for example, if I walk into my local polling place to vote, certainly in 2022 and, of course, in 2024. I'm wondering, particularly given the restrictive nature of most of the legislation coming out, that for 2024, is this card going to be needed for mail-in voting and or for voting via the way that was uh, set up by the legislature for the visually impaired about a month ago? And if so, how would it be used? So that, I'm assuming, is, is your voter registration card. And that is a card that you can use to show your ID if you go to the poll in person. But you also have to have a picture ID. So if you don't have a picture ID, you have to have two pieces of alternate ID that have your name and address like your voter registration card. And there's a list of the acceptable ID. It's on, you can find it at Arizona.vote, along with every single other piece of information you need to vote in our elections. Now, if you are voting by mail, your identity is verified by your signature on the envelope. There's a little affidavit there. Now, if you get assistance for filling out your ballot, there's a place for the person who assists you to sign as well. And right now, that is still the way things are working. However, there is initiative that is going to be on the ballot this November. uh, So voters will get to decide if this is how we do things in the future that will require additional information on that affidavit on your mail-in ballot. So it might be it might be your voter identification number that's on that voter registration card, or it might be part of your social security number, or it might be part of your driver's license number. That is not the law yet. And if voters don't pass it in November, it won't be the law in the future. So right now, the the same ways that you've always used to vote and to verify your identity when you vote are the same thing that, that will be in place for the 2022 election. Now, if that changes because of some legislation that's passed by the legislature, because they're still currently in session right now, we will make sure that we're putting that updated information at Arizona.vote. But we also worked really hard 
before the last election to provide specific guides to specific populations. And so if there was something that we needed to do to especially inform your community, we could work with your leadership to provide a voter guide to make sure that you had all the information you needed to be able to participate. Thank you. All right. And we have Mallory. I have a question about this. She she mentioned something about the uh, getting criminals to be able to vote again. And why is that? Because honestly, I have an opinion on this. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't think that's very safe mm-hmm. because having criminals at the polling places, even though you're saying they paid their debt, they paid their dues, whatever it may be, not all of them have. Because I've seen things where criminals have not been, you know, just because they've been in jail, just because they've done community service, just because they've done whatever it may be, jail, house arrest, community service, whatever it may be. I don't think it's very safe for, I don't think it's safe at all, quite frankly, for criminals to be on the street if they've been in jail or house arrest or whatever it may be. If they've been confined in some way, shape or form for whatever they've done, I don't think it's safe for them to be out on the street because I don't think it would make the polling places very safe. They're liable to commit a crime at the polling place. I'm not going to go into a diatribe about the entire criminal justice system, which I could answer your question, but we have courts who determine guilt or innocence. And then if people are convicted, they have a, a sentence that they pay. And that sentence might include some level of incarceration. It might include probation or parole. It might include fines that they have restitution that they have to pay. And so, and that's how the system works. And so, um, Right now, under current law, if you have con- if you have been convicted of a felony, mm-hmm. then you do not have voting rights, and you have to actively apply to have your voting rights restored. Other civil rights are involved as well, like the the ability to own a firearm. You have to go through an application process to be able to get that restored as well. You can't even do that until you've done everything the courts tell you that you have to do, whether that's your prison time, your probation, your parole, your your fines, and your restitution. And that is really, I mean, if there is something that needs to happen to make sentences harsher for criminals to keep Mm -hmm. people safer. That is like not something that I want to get into here, but somebody's done everything the court said they have to do. This is about restoring their civil rights. And regardless of if you think it makes polling places safe or unsafe, these people are for the most part walking around in society every day anyway. And Mm -hmm. folks that are going to go through that application process to have their voting rights restored, they want to be actively engaged in civil society. And right now, as I said, they have to go through that application process. So there is push to have those voting rights automatically restored for people without having to go through that application process. That is not the current law, and that would have to be changed by the legislature, right? And and Mm -hmm. I don't think the current legislature is willing to do that. All right, Desi, are there any more hands up? George Martinez has his hand up. My question is is about legislation. I know when there's public measures, you know, that have been brought up by the people. I can't remember what they're called now, but they're listed. I remember when I wanted to see one, 
I was told to go to the Secretary of State's office. Mm -hmm. Is there a place where you can go to look up legislation that's in the legislature before the legislature right now and what it's about? Yes. If you go to azleg.gov, um, that's the legislative website, and it kind of gives you a rundown. You can look for all the bills that are have been introduced in the current legislative session and see what their status is. The legislative session starts every year on the second Monday in January, and they have long passed the deadlines for introducing new legislation or for bills that haven't been heard in committee to, to get hearing. But the legislature can always change the rules if they have something that they want to get through. If bills haven't made it through yet, there's a smaller chance that they will. But all of the bills that are in the process right now are listed at azleg.gov. Thank you. If I may interject something very, very briefly, I commend the state of Arizona for the accessibility of that site. Uh, I looked at it when I first came, me being sort of a legislative advocacy hound, I took a look at it. When I first came here, even, even before I owned property here, it's uh, it's impressive. It, it it is very well designed from an accessibility standpoint. I was just going to say, George, I think the other measure you were referring to are initiatives. Those are filed with the Secretary of State's office, and they would go on the ballot in November. And so those are all listed on the Secretary of State's website. Our next hand is Nora. Hi. Uh, my question is. What about people who are voters who are only braille readers? Is mm-hmm. there any way for them to vote, even though they can't read print, but they can read braille of any, of any sort? So what are their, what are yes. their, their options? Yes, you can specifically request a braille ballot from your county recorder. I think that Maricopa County is the county that prints them but they work with the other counties to print the ballot that you would need um, if you're not in Maricopa County. Thank you. Thank you so much, Secretary Hobbs, for all of this information. It's going to be very, very helpful. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. So now we will hear from one of our members, Jordan Lopezanski, who is in the Southern Arizona chapter, and he's going to talk a little bit about his experience with AZCB, how belonging affected him. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Again, my name is Jordan Lopezanski in Tucson, Arizona. I'm the vice president on the board over here. I've been a member of ACB for about 1.5 years. And two of the main reasons why I joined is one, I was lonely. And then two, I was depressed. I have my master's in social work. I used to be a full-time counselor. I still work in social services. And, and so through, through research and whatnot, one of the, the main things that leads to depression is, is a lack of hope or, or hopelessness. And so joining ACB has definitely helped me with my loneliness. Sounds weird to say, cheesy, but you know, making really good friends and getting to know them on a personal level has helped my depression because it's inspiring, for lack of a better phrase. I know inspiring is thrown around all the time, but it, it really is to see people in this organization go for their PhDs, go get their master's degree, creating an amazing conference that we're all here. Now we got Senator Hobbs as, as the keynote speaker. I mean, oh my gosh, like that that's very impressive. And as the, the saying goes, iron sharpens iron. And so 
being part of this group has given me confidence as far as letting my social work nature shine because I co-created and co-facilitate ACB's uh, support group, which is over Zoom. The Phoenix chapter also joins as well, where it's a um, what we call a, a processing group. So we're not learning skills per se to, to handle blindness, but it's a processing group where we got to get to talk about you know what? Some days it, it, it does suck being blind. Um, it, it is challenging. The, the, the world treats us harshly at times. But knowing that people have our backs, that, that we're not alone, we're not pity parting each other either, but we're saying, no, walk tall with, with your chest out, your shoulders back. You have dignity. Getting that kind of feedback is, is, is priceless. And, and I know that internally changing being part of ACB and and I'm trying to give it what I'm learning forward, you know, by help co-facilitating the support group. And so for all of you in the audience, you know, just I encourage you if not already to, to, to help spread the word of joining ACB because um, one, it will help depression, see your doctor and all that disclaimer, whatever it, it helped mine. But also, it gives you opportunities to give back, to not just be takers and, and consumers of ACB, but look for opportunities on your own God-given skills to give back to ACB and to other people in the blind community. I truly believe we all have a purpose. You know, maybe we lost our, our, our blindness or lost our eyesight for a purpose. So I just want to say thank you to ACB, specifically to, to Chris Desbro, who I really look up, I really admire, and uh, thanks for having me. That was great, Jordan. Thank you. I myself have been a part of ACB since 2012, and I've made a lot of good friends and uh, just very much enjoyed myself. I do want to introduce our next session, the the fabulous Eric Bridges and Clark Ratchfold duo. For those of you that don't know, Eric is the executive director of the American Council of the Blind, and Clark is the director of advocacy and governmental affairs. And in the spirit of that theme of speaking to be heard, we have asked Eric and Clark to speak to us about ACB's legislative initiatives. So I will just hand it straight over to uh, this well-oiled machine of Eric and Clark. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I'm not even sure that my wife thinks I'm fabulous, but um, <laughs> appreciate it very much. So, um, yeah. So I'm Eric Bridges. I'm the executive director of ACB and um, have been with the organization for it'll be 15 years actually next month so it's it's been a great honor to work for the organization and and work with our members uh, on any number of of projects a lot of my time at ACB has been spent in working on advocacy issues i had clark's job for about the first i would say 6 years of my career so this area governmental affairs advocacy regulatory stuff is, is something that i i still care passionately about and i'm glad to be here with clark who's been with us for about 3 years clark why don't you say hi hi all clark rockfall acb's director of advocacy and governmental affairs I, i'm going to blame it on the pandemic for the longest time i was saying oh i've been with acb two years a little more than two years well now it's a little bit more than three years as the director of advocacy and governmental affairs the work i do out of the national office in alexandria with our colleagues swatha nandukumar is everything related to legislation regulation legal advocacy, and when possible and when appropriate, communicating with, with you all, our affiliates and our members across the United States to assist with all of the advocacy work, the great work that you all are doing. 
Awesome. So what we thought we would do today is cover several different topics. Some of these topics may be familiar to you all that have participated in the DC Leadership Conference that we had in March or have been active you know, with ACB advocacy issues over the last couple of years. Uh, one of the important components to doing advocacy is to have a can-do spirit and uh, stick-to-itiveness, right? Because none of the stuff that really matters gets done overnight, it would appear, at ACB or, frankly, at <laughs> times in life. So these issues that we're going to be talking about today, most all of them touch technology at some point. It is literally impossible to escape technology these days. Um, I know that I oftentimes check my my phone, my email on my phone before I even get out of bed in the morning. It's something that I need to stop doing. <laughs> and then through the course of the day, my phone, my laptop, my desk phone, uh, and my office are all being utilized for different things, as well as email, text messages, you name it. There are any number of ways to communicate today. And technology has come a very long way, but unfortunately, in some areas, uh, some sectors of our economy, technology has not come far enough with regard to accessibility. And so what we're going to talk a little bit about today is uh, a little issue called web access, web accessibility, accessible websites, inaccessible websites. Is there a law on the books that deals with web accessibility? No. Um, would we like there to be? Yes. So we'll talk a little bit about that. There is also, again, under this technology umbrella, the topic area of exercise and fitness and, and health and wellness. And there are several different topics under that heading that, that we'll talk a little bit about. So Clark, why don't we jump into the, to the first issue here and talk about web accessibility, what ACB has been up to in collaboration with other organizations and why this is so important. Sure thing. Thanks, Eric. Yes, web access. And we'll just use that shorthand web access because really what we're talking about are websites, your standard www.cutepuppyphotos.com type website address. But we're talking also about applications, traditionally mobile applications, but now applications are, are everywhere. And there are also a lot of online services and portals. I'm going to say web access, but we really mean all aspects of the internet where individuals, consumers, employees, patients, where everyone, students, where everyone interacts, communicates and accesses information. So ACB has been working for over a year now on draft legislation that would require action by the Department of Justice to create a national enforceable framework of web access regulations. We've had very hands-on input into this legislation drafting progress, not only at the staff level, but ACB board members, our advocacy services committee, our subject matter experts from our committees. It's been a, a really a, a highlight to be a part of because like Eric mentioned, it, it touches all aspects of our lives. This initially started with conversations between the American Council of the Blind and the National Federation of the Blind working in collaboration. This tent has grown uh, since 
late October, we've been holding weekly meetings, ACB, NFB, the American Foundation for the Blind, National Disability Rights Network, and more recently, the DREDF, Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund. While we've been working on getting the best possible legislative draft that we can, we have also been appealing directly to the Biden administration and the Department of Justice to use their existing authority. You know, there's no law that specifically mentions website accessibility, like Eric said, but the Department of Justice has been pretty clear for over 25 years that the ADA in many aspects applies to websites and the online environment. And I think now we kind of have an awakening of the broader public, as well as folks in government. No one argues that the physical built environment, buildings, stores, shops, stadiums must be accessible as a response from the ADA. But the ADA was passed in 1990. If you listen to, uh, to Bill Clinton, he only sent two emails during his entire presidency there in the 90s. So uh, that's just a small anecdote. Take it with a grain of salt. But you get the picture. Nowadays, and especially throughout the past two years of the pandemic, when so many things shut down in person, the virtual built environment became just as important, if not more so, than the physical built environment. And that's the case that we're making. Along with the legislative efforts, ACB and our partners, as well as many ACB affiliates, uh, signed onto a letter uh, to the Department of Justice and to the Attorney General, more than 180 national, state, and local organizations in total joined this letter and told the Department of Justice, use your existing authority to create a national framework for web access regulations and do it by the end of the Biden administration's first term. And why is that so important? Because this effort was begun in 2010 by the Obama administration. It lingered for several years. Some senators weighed in, urging them to complete it in 2015. And then in 2017, the advance notice of proposed rulemaking was taken down. um, And that rulemaking was not completed by the Trump administration in 2017. So we don't know what's going to happen with the presidential election in 2024. I'd like to say that that's a a world away from where we are right now, but it's also right around the corner. So we, we realize time is of the essence. And if the Department of Justice is going to act under their existing authority, they need to do so post haste. And if we're going to have more I'll use dithering. It is inactivity by the Department of Justice and by the administration. That's why we're working so diligently on legislation as well. That's why this is one of our legislative imperatives for this year. And we want to make sure that it's a bill that the entire disability community will support because we know that there will be a a tremendous effort potentially by the, the business or small business community to push back on this. Um, So we want to have a united front as we go into the legislative process to push this forward 
as much as possible. And Eric, I, I do have some an additional piece of good news to share on. Well, I'm this always topic. up for good news. Yeah. So this week we just had Global Accessibility Awareness Day on Thursday, <clears throat> May 19th, and on Wednesday the 18th, the Association of Computing Machinery an organization of 50,000 computer science professionals and engineers, they sent a letter of support that specifically referenced the 180 organization letter from February, as well as the Department of Justice guidance from March 18th, saying that that guidance is a great first step, but that DOJ needs to act and needs to do so in the Biden administration's first term to get web access regulations on the books. Nice. That's outstanding. Yeah. I think in order for for us to see success in this area, be it legislative or regulatory, there does need to be a coalescing by certain companies within the technology sector to support you know, the concept of this stuff. You know, during the Obama administration, there were a number of companies that I would say stood in the way of the final regulation being set forth, as well as I think that there were some political challenges as the tech sector is, there are Democrat leaders that that manage the tech sector as well. All of this is a it's a challenge. And, and the only way that big things like this can be achieved is if you apply pressure in different areas. And if you can apply pressure in different areas, the assistance of a trade association or a large tech company along the way, it can do a world of good to seeing things through to the end. Clark, why don't we, why don't we move on to the TVAAA? What enabled the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act to be, to essentially cross the finish line and go from a bill to becoming a law and then implemented was negotiating with large swaths of the technology sector. And I had the great fortune to be part of that, representing ACB and having large companies to negotiate with and come to agreement on terms of the CVAA in 2010 enabled that bill to become a law. And for us to be seeing and experiencing some of the real accessibility evolution that's taken place directly due to the CVAA. So the challenge, though, with laws that are technology-based is that the laws and at times the regulations that are implemented from them become out of date, right? Because it takes a while to get a bill to become law and then to have it implemented at a, at a federal agency like the FCC. And at times, <laughs> the bill language can almost be obsolete by the time Three, four years later, the actual requirements go into effect for companies to comply, right? So the nature of technology is, is fast, right? The, the rapidity of the evolution of technology is it moves at hyperspeed. And in the last few years in particular, has been stunning to watch what has happened and what's going on. So what would you say, Clark? Nine months ago, close to a year ago, we got together with some of our colleagues in the deaf and hard of hearing community, as well as some folks that worked with ACB uh, from a legal standpoint on the uh, original CVAA to look at the future 
of technology. What do we have today that's working? Where are the gaps? And looking into the future to the extent that we can, what do we want or need to have covered to enable us to continue to gain access to more and different technology? So could you talk just briefly about the CVAAA? Absolutely. And well, a couple things first, Eric, I think that this really this push on communications, video accessibility amendments act, uh, CV AAA, I think a lot of this was spurred on by the events and the celebration of the 10th anniversary of the CVAA, including the conversation that you had with Senator Markey and others back in October of 2020. I think at that time, folks began to to kind of look around and yes, celebrate and see how far we've come, but also just how much the landscape has shifted and evolved over the past 10 years. And as Eric mentioned, he was involved in the the CVAA process uh, far more closely than many. I was also involved in the CVAA process, but yes, from were. the other side of the table. That's how we came um, to know one another. Yeah. Exactly. I was uh, working with the, the good folks at Verizon Communications, a, a strong partner of ACB down through the years. And that was really my first taste of disability and accessibility policy during my time at Verizon as well. But as Eric mentioned, this is a law that was passed in 2010 and dealt with technology in 2010. So over-the-air television, cable, satellite. I mean, I mean, at this point, the telephone companies, Verizon and AT&T, they, they had not been in the video game for, for all that long, you know, say five years at most. But this was also three years before Netflix streamed its first show, its first Netflix original produced show, uh, House of Cards, was uh, available straight to streaming in 2013. So there are there are many aspects of the CVAA that we don't even think about because a lot of times we think about the CVAA as the law that brought us audio description. And I'm, I'm sure right now, if folks came off mute, there'd be uproarious applause. Uh, whistling in the crowds, because if we know one thing, it's ACB, our members and the broader community love having access to audio description. Um, We love it. Yes. It love being able to check the program listings on the audio description project website, because we know that that is the most current and up-to-date and comprehensive source for audio described content. And just a quick little tidbit, Clark, just for the audience, when we meet with companies like Apple and Netflix and Amazon to talk with them about audio description or could be other issues, they all say that they send their engineers to the audio description project website to look at the library of described content because they're on the hunt for content for their own their own streaming services and there's only one place in the world to go that has up to date accurate information on audio described content be it network tv streaming services movies and it's acb's audio description project site it's amazing it is and it combines the information directly from the programmers that we've built relationships with 
over the, the past 12 years. But there's also an element of consumer feedback and in-house testing to trust but mm-hmm. verify. Because how many times exactly. do, we, do we all know that something is supposed to be audio described, but it, it might not be getting through to the consumer. So for example, during the, the Olympics last summer in Tokyo, Eric and I live all of two miles apart. He's in Arlington County in Virginia. I'm in Alexandria City in Virginia. We're both Comcast customers and I had audio description and he didn't. So, you know, what the heck, right? But the the CVAA is much more than audio description, which we'll come back to in a second. It's also the law that requires mobile phones and all phones, but primarily mobile phones to be accessible. It's the law that required mobile web browsers to be accessible for non-visual access, you know, people who are blind. This is a law that requires advanced communication services. So this covers text, audio, and video. However, the the FCC's current regulations cover two-way real-time and near-real-time text communications and two-way audio communications. So text messages, direct messages, email, group chats. If you are using, Eric, oh, I don't know, a telehealth or patient portal, and you're messaging directly with your doctor or your doctor's staff, that needs to be accessible. If you are making a phone call or you're using an application to have a voice conversation, that needs to be accessible. So just think about all the aspect of our lives that these issues touch. And I think that's the real, I want to say it's still still like the best kept secret of the CVAA is just how much this legislation and the implementing regulations did for mobile, on the go, uh, but all forms of communication. And now back to audio description. So audio description, <laughs> the top four broadcasters, the top five non-broadcasters, so like the, the cable channels, the cable programmers, they need to pass through audio description, but only 87 and a half hours per quarter every, every three months. So you're looking at just over one hour of audio description a day is required by the CVAA. And until 2020, that was required only at the top 60 out of 210 designated market areas. Think like uh, metropolitan areas in the United States. Now, Can I I give you a little tidbit, Clark, about the 60? Isn't that a random number? It's totally random, right? Why not 50? (laughs) Why not the top 25 or whatever, right? It's because... Senator Mark Pryor at the time, who was very much engaged in the negotiations for the CVAA, Senator Pryor is from Arkansas, and the, the largest designated market area in Arkansas is Little Rock, and it happened to be market area number 57. Instead of 50 or 70 or 25 or what have you, it, it wound up being that because of what a senator wanted. <laughs> yeah. In practicality, what this means, and, and those markets are expanding now since 2020, we're adding 10 markets a year. So we're now here in 2022, the top 80 designated market areas will be required to pass through audio description for their broadcasters. So 
80 down, 130 to go. So in 13 years, Bisbee, there's Yuma, still TV. And- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's coming to uh, an over-the-air television near you. But that, and that's the problem, right? So if you're in the Phoenix area, you can get audio description on your local broadcasters. What about Tucson? What about Flagstaff? What about other cities? Ideally, when we're looking to an amendments act for the CVAA, you know, at, at this point in time, we know that consumers want to watch video. Everyone wants to watch video. And we don't care where we watch video. Uh, And certainly technology is making it harder and harder to distinguish where we are getting our video programming from, right? Like if you've got a smart TV, it's very difficult to tell the difference between your over-the-air antenna signals, potentially your cable signals, and your streaming content. It all shows up looking like, back to web access, like applications. A, there's no requirements for streaming applications to pass through or make available audio description. And there's very limited requirements for applications for video programming to be accessible. And that just doesn't match the world that we are living in post 10 years of the CVAA. So one of the things we're pushing for strongly in the CV AAA is that video has to have audio description, period. Yes. And it, that was just a dramatic pause. I'll keep going. I will. Um, but, <laughs> you know, broad, <laughs> broadcast, cable, satellite, television, or streaming, all of this should be audio described. And the user interfaces have to be accessible so that people who are blind can independently access this programming. In addition to having the program available, ensuring that folks can access it, there should also be listings available so that folks know what's audio described. And if there is an issue that makes, for whatever reason, the audio description isn't coming through, much like we have when it comes to advanced communication services from the CVAA, Companies have to have a point of contact for accessibility-related issues. Video programmers should have to have a point of contact for both closed captioning and audio description-related issues, you know, whether it's complaints or just troubleshooting. So that is what we were hoping to accomplish in a, a CV AAA. You know, we're very happy to have strong partners in this space like the American Foundation for the Blind, as well as the folks in the Deaf and Hard of Hearing community, National Association of the Deaf, Hearing Loss Association of America, and Telecommunications for the Deaf. Eric, you and ACB, even before my time, have been making progress and moving industry towards this inevitable eventuality through the advocacy work of ACB with streaming companies. Yeah. So in 2015, it had taken a couple of years of that advocacy work before that. We reached an agreement with Netflix to have them audio describe all of their original series and also to make their user interface accessible for individuals who are blind or visually impaired. Um, that was that was a very big deal. Having ACB quoted in an article in Variety was something to read and to see, to experience. A lot of the Netflix work, the success with Netflix, I, I do have to say, 
the deaf and hard of hearing community had filed a lawsuit against Netflix regarding captioning. And it allowed us to come in behind and time when they were pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> so it worked out well. In the years after, you've seen us work with companies or attempt to work with companies to bring audio description to their streaming services. Hulu would be one example. You know, it's unfortunate that we wound up filing a lawsuit against Hulu, but there there is some description on Hulu and we're continuing to work with the leadership at Hulu on that. HBO Max was a huge advocacy challenge for us. And I'm, I'm very proud. There's like over 3,000 hours of described content on HBO Max due to our, our direct advocacy. And then while this is going on, the other streaming services are paying attention to what's happening within the industry and what ACB is doing. So Apple TV launched in 2019 with a completely accessible user interface, audio description in, I believe, eight different languages. And that audio description was in Dolby Atmos, the, the best sound quality, which you hardly ever before that time heard audio described content in, in Dolby Atmos. Disney Plus, upon its launch, audio description of its original series with an accessible user interface. Amazon has, has taken uh, and made strides as well. So there's a lot of work that has been done here. And again, there are multiple pressure points or multiple ways to impact an advocacy issue through the legislative, the regulatory, through the legal, and also just through collaboration. And that's primarily how we've done much of our work with corporate America has been through collaboration. And what we've been able to do with many of these companies is deepen and strengthen the relationships that we had. There are a couple that we're probably never going to be best friends with, and that's okay. We don't need to be friends with everybody, but what we need is access and having a collaborative spirit. So it's been tremendous to watch the proliferation of, of all this streaming content. You know, I've got two young kids and don't have a lot of time to, to watch a lot of stuff. Um, but I wind up watching audio described kids content, which is kind of fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> at any rate, there is so much to, to talk about in this area, the area of entertainment and access to, to entertainment. But I think, Clark, why don't we, why don't we move on to uh, another really big area that has been, uh, I think, a, a sore point for our community for quite some time, but sort of revealed itself in the challenges that we face pretty acutely during the pandemic. And that is the whole area of health and wellness. Within health and wellness, you've got accessible COVID tests, you've got telemed visits, you've got patient portals, you've got any number of different things. And, and frankly, exercise and fitness, accessible exercise and fitness equipment. When we couldn't all go outside for a while. Uh, what were we doing? Did the stuff that we had purchased before the pandemic actually work for us the way that it reported to work? You know, these are, these are significant areas, areas that ACB has been engaged with. And I believe the success that we're going to have within the kind of the technology realm moving forward, uh, much of it's going to need to center around health and healthcare. So Clark, why don't you take it away? 
Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. And uh, on the nitty gritty policy side, there are some tendrils that connect these issues to items that we just discussed on legislation and implementing regulations. But the big bucket of health and wellness, Um, this was one of the items that was drilled into me early and often by our ACB board members. I was informed that there was an health issues task force that looked into these issues in the mid-2000s. And I found out very quickly by doing open advocacy calls with our advocacy services committee chair, Jeff Tom, that our folks still care passionately about health care access issues. And again, cared about them before the pandemic. Now, the pandemic's made it fashionably cool to care about health care access, right? But we know that these have been issues, longstanding issues, where people with disabilities, people who are blind and low vision have had trouble accessing independently, privately, equitably health care systems, information, services. That's what Eric's talking about here. Obviously, there's the low vision device coverage that, although it's not a legislative imperative this year, it's an issue that we've been actively working on, trying to include it in the large budget and infrastructure packages within Congress as uh, Medicare vision coverage, just broad low vision device coverage, but also the Medicare Demonstration of Coverage for Low Vision Devices Act was reintroduced in February here in 2022 by representatives Villarakis and Maloney with more than 20 original co-sponsors. Uh, and this is an area where we continue to collaborate with our partners like Prevent Blindness and the, the ITEM Coalition, which focuses on innovation and technology in, in Medicare and Medicaid services. Once the pandemic was in full swing, it also became clear to us that accessibility was not top of mind. With items as simple as COVID information from the CDC and their inaccessible charts and graphs on their website to COVID vaccination scheduling websites or places that offered drive-up only COVID testing and vaccination. Heaven forbid somebody who's blind stand in line with the cars. You're not driving up. You're not going to get treated or seen. So those are the sorts of barriers that our, our members shared with us all too often. And these are the issues that we've been working to address most recently with the federal government rolling out their program of providing free at-home COVID tests from COVID tests, two S's, it's plural, covidtests.gov. And now folks, if you are so inclined, you can go on and order a a third round of free at-home COVID tests. But a little heads up, they won't be accessible to you. They'll come with inaccessible directions. You'll be asked to manipulate very small things and count the number of drops you put on the test strip. And then the results will only be displayed visually. And unless you're fortunate like Eric to have a seven-year-old help you complete the test, it'll be nearly impossible to do privately or independently, just like everyone else can do when utilizing this government service at home. So ACB, so Clark, 
Check yes. this out. So yes, you are correct. So <laughs> I, I've had COVID twice this year. The last time I got it, the whole family had it. And my test experience is not unlike anybody else's that can't see, but it involved, because my wife is also blind, uh, it involved our seven-year-old son, Tyler, and it involved my father on FaceTime, uh, looking up the directions, working with me and my son, Tyler, who's a smart young boy, but he's seven, to make sure we were doing everything right. And then ultimately having Tyler take a photo with my wife's phone, because again, my phone had my dad on it on FaceTime. So Tyler's taking a picture of the COVID result. And then my wife is texting the photo to my dad so that he can then tell me if I have COVID or not. That was something. And it took 45 minutes or so. (laughs) And for those that don't have a Tyler at home, there are Be My Eyes and Ira services that that we all know and love, heeding the call of the community and offering yeah. this service. But again, you, you have to have broadband access. You have to be comfortable yep. using technology. And big kicker, you've got to want to give up your privacy to share your COVID information uh, with an agent, but we'll call them a friend. So that's big, something big that people without disabilities do not have to do and are not asked to do on a regular basis. So that is why ACB is directly engaging with the Department of Health and Human Services and the National Institutes of Health. It's why President Dan Spoon and immediate past president Kim Charlson are a part of listening sessions and roundtables offering advice on how to make COVID tests accessible. And it's why ACB is leaving all advocacy options on the table to ensure accessible testing services for our members and the broader community of people who are blind and low vision. This year, two of our legislative imperatives are related to health and wellness as well. One is the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. And here in the 117th Congress, it's been introduced in both the House and the Senate. So in the House, it's H.R. 4756. And in the Senate, It is S2504, and our affiliates and scheduling their meetings uh, with representatives and senators on Capitol Hill. Big shout out to Arizona, because on March 31st, Representative Grijalva from Arizona became a co-sponsor of the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. And I'm not sure who from Arizona, who from the councils in Representative Grijalva's district, but you're about to get a a double shout out for the advocacy work with with that office. So the Exercise and Fitness for All Act would require exercise equipment to be accessible, uh, tactile user interfaces, audio output. So our treadmills, ellipticals, exercise bikes, basically it's not good enough to say that a gym is ADA compliant because there's a ramp, an automatic door, an elevator, and a zero entry shower, right? We need access to the actual equipment, the services in the facility, so the equipment and the classes with accessible instruction. And that's what we're striving for with the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. It's also why we are engaging in direct advocacy. The American Council of the Blind, along with Paralyzed Veterans of America and National Council on Independent Living, calling ourselves the Coalition for Inclusive Fitness, are engaging directly with the facility providers, 
your gyms, your hotels, things like that. Uh, in last September, we announced a policy change by Planet Fitness with their more than 2,000 locations in the United States that as accessible equipment becomes available, they will purchase it and install it in their locations. And that's the, the catalyst for reaching out to other facility providers as well. But it also puts the manufacturers on notice like, hey, there's a market for this. It's not just the bridges saying that we want one treadmill or we want one exercise bike. It's one of the largest gym chains in the United States saying, yes, we will purchase this equipment. So we are continuing our advocacy and direct outreach to equipment manufacturers as well. One of our other legislative imperatives is the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. And in the House, that is H.R. 4853. This is a bill strongly endorsed by ACB Diabetics in Action because it would require class two and three durable medical equipment and diagnostic devices with a digital display to be made accessible to people who are blind and low vision. There's now over 50 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. It's a bipartisan bill, and both representatives, Grialva and Kirkpatrick from Arizona, are co-sponsors of this legislation. So think continuous glucose monitors, insulin pumps, blood pressure cuffs, at-home chemotherapy units, pulse oximeters, all of these items that folks use on a regular basis, especially folks with chronic conditions or diseases, often conditions that have a comorbidity with the COVID-19 virus, but also things that folks in rural parts of the country need for at-home use because their doctor's offices are so far away or because transportation options for folks who don't live in an urban environment can pose challenges to getting to and from the doctor continuously, routinely, or on a, a timely basis. So that's why we need access to this, this equipment. So again, we can independently manage and take charge of our own health. And those themes are why ACB has created our Get Up and Get Moving campaign which puts a lot of these issues in a nice umbrella. You know, we're really good at the advocacy work, right? But we need kind of that campaign, that get up and get moving campaign umbrella so that we can share the great work we're doing, create more public awareness and pursue partners who are active in this space and who support the work that we're doing to draw their attention to the work we're doing, Eric. And that's been, it's been a little difficult not getting out able to do in-person events over the past two years, but ACB's advocacy work in this space is not going unnoticed. No, just within the last nine months, we have welcomed some corporations as health heroes. And being a health hero as part of the Get Up and Get Moving campaign means that you're into help in whatever way is uh, available. So we were thrilled last fall to welcome Walmart as a health hero, and they will be at our convention this summer as part of the the walk that we do across the pedestrian bridge in Omaha, so Bluffs, Iowa. Vanda Pharmaceuticals joined last year as a as a health hero as well. And you all know Vanda well; they've made the rounds to state conventions for 
probably a decade or so. They're a wonderful partner of ACB and our, our state affiliates, as well as uh, the American Printing House. And they've joined as a health hero as well. And there's another large announcement, very big announcement that we'll be making here within the next couple of weeks of a, 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 I would call it a, an iconic company that has a brand that's known all over the world that is going to be coming on as a health hero. So looking forward to being able to share all of that with you. ACB as part of Get Up and Get Moving <clears throat> has had the opportunity to present at the, obviously at the convention last year, but also at the Site Tech Global Conference in December of 2020 to talk about precisely what Clark has been talking about under this health and wellness part of this discussion, uh, the, the need to make all of this more accessible. And we've highlighted along the way some testimonials from members of, of ACB, a guy that you all know very well, Jeff Bishop, who now lives in Washington State, but born and raised in Arizona, uh, and his, his journey to exercise and fitness, as well as others. So there's there's a lot going on in this area. The The pandemic has, I, I think at times with regard to this campaign, it has hindered the in-person event <laughs> component. Uh, we were scheduling a, a walk in New York City last fall and uh, the Omicron variant rose up, or actually I think it was Delta rose up and prevented that from, from taking place. But encourage those of you that are going to be attending the convention in Omaha this summer to come and participate on the walk with us, as well as the day before the, you know, the, the ACB walk. A lot of opportunity to get out there and to, to exercise. In other words, Eric, a lot of opportunities to get up and get moving. Well done, sir. <laughs> Uh, and th- there are, oh my goodness it yeah. is friday evening <laughs> yeah. there there are many other items that fall into this space right of health and wellness i think last year there were at least four resolutions related to various aspects of health and wellness um, whether it was uh, the accessibility of pill pack packaging or telehealth services training for healthcare professionals health and wellness is keeping ACB very active, and we are very engaged not only with uh, the federal government, our partners in Congress, but also the cross-disability community to ensure um, access, independent and private access for people who are blind and low vision. And also, we're doing our part with legal advocacy as well. So whether that's inaccessible kiosk services when for registration or checking in for appointments. Again, the, the communications aspects of telehealth portals, watching that space very closely. So stay tuned and I'm sure we will have more announcements as it relates to our advocacy work, our partnerships, and more opportunities for folks to get up and get moving. And I would say the last issue that, that we would maybe raise here briefly as we the time is growing thin here, Clark, the Ability One program and the employment of individuals with disabilities under that government procurement program, and in particular, the employment of people who are blind within that program. Can you give just a quick update as to sort of 
what's been going on with that as um, that particular law, which is known as the Javits-Wagner-O'Day Act, hasn't been updated in, I think, 51 years. Yeah, since 1971. So if if folks are unaware, there is a, an advocacy update podcast that Swathananda Kumar and I put out on a regular basis. And the advocacy update from last week for Thursday, May 12th, was a conversation with the executive director for the Ability One Commission, as well as two individuals who are blind and who are commissioners for the Ability One program. I'd encourage everyone to uh, download or stream that podcast and give it a listen. But in short, there's a lot of conversation going on right now about ways to modernize and reform the Ability One program. At ACB, we are doing our part to ensure that all of these conversations include people who are blind. Fancy that, right? This is not only a program where the nonprofit agencies make millions and millions of dollars, but it's a program where these employment opportunities offer a lifeline to people who are blind or offer vocational rehabilitation training, O&M services for people who are blind. And certainly for folks who lose their vision later in life, say to something like diabetes. So we want to make sure that the Ability One program is working for our members and people who are blind. Um, And for that reason, ACB has been supportive of phasing out the payment of less than the federal minimum wage or subminimum wage to people with disabilities. We know that there needs to be the appropriate supports in place so that no one falls through the cracks here. Uh, But we also know that as there are folks pushing to expand the Ability One program, that it can't be expanded with the current status quo in place. So any expansion of the program must come with necessary reforms that offer greater employment, engagement, and opportunities for people who are blind and low vision. And also not only at the workshop, the direct labor portion of the program, because that's all that's required now by law and regulation is that three quarters of your direct labor workforce are people who are disabled. Or in the case of the those operating under National Industries for the Blind, three quarters of the direct labor needs to be from people who are blind or low vision. But what about the indirect labor? What about management and supervisory positions? What about executive level or board representation? And what are the barriers and impediments other than societal barriers on the expectations of what people who are blind can do that are preventing people who are blind from moving up within the Ability One program or being hired for management, executive, and board representation? Going back to one of the first things we talked about, is it due to inaccessible workplace technology? Is somebody who's blind not being hired in finance, accounting, HR, because the systems that are in place are inaccessible to them. So these are all the items that we are working to address 
we're working to address them with our partners in the the cross disability community we're working to address them with our our friends in the the vision serve alliance national industries for the blind and national association for the employment of people who are blind but we're also addressing this through direct engagement with the ability one commission so we know there are some things that they can do through regulatory changes but ultimately it's going to come to a point where congress will need to act congress will need to modernize the ability one program and we want to make sure that we can bring together as many folks to agree on a set of reforms and updates to again move the program forward ensure that it continues to serve people who are blind and visually impaired and at all levels of the program. Now, we're not trying to eliminate direct labor and and folks who want to work on assembly lines or in the, the service sector of the Ability One program. We just don't want that to be the only option. You know, it's not much of an option if it's the only option, right? So let folks choose based off of their skills, their desires, their hopes and dreams at what level they can excel throughout this government program. Clark, Eric, you guys are incredible. (laughs) You guys made my job so easy. (laughs) Eric Clark, thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you for the wealth of information, the short, long novella. (laughs) That was perfect. We couldn't thank you enough for taking time, especially on Friday to be with us and share all of what's going on with Arizona and obviously everybody else in the ACB world and those that are on ACB media. So thank you guys for all that you do. Well, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. And and if anyone has any questions or advocacy issues that they'd like to bring to our attention, they can always email Swatha and me at advocacy at acb.org. Great. Thank you so much, guys. What a great convention. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Uh Um, Now, we're going to hear from another AZCB member, Jeff Ricker, who's going to talk about his experience with the Central Arizona chapter. Hello, my name is Jeffrey Ricker. I began to lose my vision less than five years ago at the age of 60. I have been completely blind for only two years. I had to quickly learn to accommodate my life to vision loss. I needed to learn to live as a blind person. I started vocational rehabilitation and I had two goals. I wanted to continue to live independently and I wanted to learn the skills I needed to continue in my position as a college professor. But my life had been turned upside down and I realized that the road ahead was a long one that would be filled with many challenges along the way. So I looked for any opportunities to learn from other blind people, to learn from them how to cope with the massive changes in my life. My friend, Dean Colston, was working at the time with the Arizona Council of the Blind. I attended a meeting of the Central Chapter with him. The people seemed to be very supportive of one another, and they were very inviting to me. The atmosphere reminded me of a very close family, and so I decided to join the chapter. I was pleased to discover that my new family extended beyond the Phoenix area. ACB is truly a statewide organization. The central and southern chapters coordinate their efforts very closely. Each month, There's a statewide social meeting and also a statewide support group. 
I participate frequently in both of those because the challenges have continued. I have learned so much about coping with the changes in my life because of the opportunities to get together with people from around the state. That is why this year I took on the responsibility of becoming the vice president of the central chapter. I wanted to give back something to the people who have helped me and also to help others who are trying to cope with their own vision loss. I've always found that the more involved I get with something, the more I learn and the more it helps me. So I encourage all of you to get involved with ACB. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. And I think that that's something that we've all, I think that's a theme we're going to hear through the next couple of days is family. Arizona is a family, no matter how spread out we are. So I think you're spot on. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. So I would like to take the privilege of introducing Frank Vance, who's the head of counseling services at the Arizona Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And he's going to share his expertise uh, related to the challenges of mental health and blindness and um, COVID's exasperation on mental health. So I will pass it on to Frank, and thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. It's quite an honor to be able to present at a convention, even a virtual convention. And um, I'd just like to share a little bit about myself and my history with ACBVI, or the Arizona Center for the Blind. I've been there quite a while. I joined the staff in 1985, and I was hired as a rehabilitation counselor. And uh, the center has grown quite a lot since then. I thought about the changes since the pandemic. That's kind of the benchmark a lot of us use because so much has changed. But when you're talking about that kind of a time span, a lot changes, a lot more than just the pandemic. Um, I got my master's in counseling from Arizona State in 1984, and shortly after that, I became the rehab counselor at the Arizona Center for the Blind. We didn't even have assistive technology then. If you all remember the Apple IIe computer with the uh, Echo 2 speech synthesizer was just coming out, so I got Apple to give us one of those computers and Alliance Club to purchase the software and the echo synthesizer. And uh, I went to another marvelous place that doesn't exist like it did called the Special Needs Center, which was part of the Phoenix Public Library, and went to learn how to use this computer. And it was a real boom for me to be able to take notes and keep records that weren't voluminous piles of braille or, or cassette tapes. It was there that I met my wife, who was my computer instructor. And, and so our, our 36th anniversary is coming up next week. So there, there's lots of history at the center. When I joined the staff, we did have a counselor, me, and we had a mobility specialist and a rehabilitation teacher, which we would now call a vision rehabilitation therapist. Assistive technology didn't come around for another 10 years or so when we started offering that service. We were mostly known for our recreation program, and it was mostly seniors. And I was still wet behind the ears. I was 25, and I, I was a little worried about how am I going to build rapport with all of these older people? Because the average age of our clientele was about 74, 75. 
Turned out really good, though. I did. I, I've always been able to listen and uh, not make hasty judgments. And, and there's just been a lot of growth at the agency since then. We started keeping digital records in about 1996. And as of about a week ago, we've done 3,165 intakes on people who have come to ACBVI to request services of various kinds. And of course, we do have the mobility and the rehab teaching and of course, assistive technology. And a lot of people wanted to build their skills, but they also wanted to work on their orientation and adjustment to blindness, you know, the acceptance and, okay, now I can't see, how do I get used to this and and get my life going accordingly? So we do a lot with support groups for people who are newly visually impaired to go through the just general information and definition of terminology and the stages of reading and the path to acceptance and building communication skills. We, we have a, a procedure, kind of a checklist on, on what is part of orientation and adjustment to blindness and vision loss. One of the things we want to do is facilitate an understanding of how vision loss affects independent living and work if they're a vocational rehabilitation client. A lot of people have inaccurate ideas about what it means to to live with vision loss. And, you know, right away the limitations, they come up. Well, I can't do anything because I can't see. I, I cannot be independent. I have to be with somebody else and they have to be in charge at all times. And of course, that that's just not true. But that's what people are starting with a lot of the time. And we want to bring them to a point where they understand that they can be independent and interdependent. And there's a lot more can-dos than can't-dos on the table. We want people to have an understanding of how nonverbal behavior, which would be like body language, voice intonation, affects communication, not only with them and us, but our posture intonation between us and them. We end up reminding a lot of people that, hey, even if you can't see the other person, it's really polite to face them when when you're engaging in conversation so that they know you're engaged. And, And you can tell a lot about what a person is saying by how they're saying, because words are one thing, but the way they're presented is something else entirely. So people need to have a good grasp of the the nonverbal behavior side of relating with other people. Um, We want to facilitate the development of positive social skills. Now, for people who have been sighted for most of their life and they lose their vision later in life, which is what happens most of the time, they have social skills, and they may think that they don't anymore because they can't see, they can't relate. 
but they do. But sometimes people growing up in sheltered environments, their social skills need a little bit of work because other people have always made their decisions and decided where they're going to be allowed to engage in the community with whom and that sort of thing. So social skills are uh, a pretty important part of adjustment to vision loss. Independent problem-solving skills, this is also really important. I've encouraged a lot of people to sit down and think about those times when they're trying to do something and they just get stuck and it's not working. And if you're like me, you keep trying to do the same thing over and over again and you're surprised that it still isn't working because, you know, the same thing is going to yield the same result most of the time. So I encourage people to think about when they're stuck to just stop and think about how can I do this? I know that other people are doing it. How are they doing it? How did they learn? How did they figure it out? How can I figure it out? So sometimes it's just getting a book and doing some reading. Sometimes it's talking to people with experience. Sometimes it's uh, going through an instructor, you know, like a rehab teacher, mobility specialist, something like that. But the focus really wants to be on how can I rather than I can't. Self-advocacy and expressing needs to family members. This is what I'm going to be talking about mostly in today's presentation. Sometimes people with vision loss do not feel empowered to advocate for themselves and to, you know, kind of stick up for what they think is right and to assertively and appropriately uh, address the issue with where it needs to be addressed. And uh, this is also with family members. For a lot of reasons, maybe they feel like they're a burden to the family. And, and so they don't want to do anything to rock the boat. They, they don't want to be obtrusive or anything like that. Or maybe they just expect too much from their family members. I'm going to come back and talk about this a little bit more shortly. Participation in recreation, wellness, and community activities. A lot of people experiencing vision loss find themselves to be in an isolated condition. And this is especially true since the pandemic has set in. You know, it's, it's hard going places when you've never been there before and you don't know the route or you don't know the lay of the environment. It's great when you have a, a companion to go with to, to do something like go to a new restaurant or a movie or, you know, getting involved in some kind of community activity. But it's so important to be able to do that so that you can make new friends and establish new social connections and grow yourself and, and benefit the community in some way, which also has benefits for you. So that's an important part adjustment to vision loss. Managing and coping with stress. We certainly want to be able to help people to do this effectively. Everybody who loses vision, you know, they're already not a stranger to stress because other things in life happen that, that stress us out. You know, we relocate or we get married or we discontinue a marriage or we retire 
or we have a, a significant loss. You know, what, what people have done before to get through those hard times, if you can understand that, it helps to understand how they're likely to get through the adjustment to vision loss. And uh, I really enjoy learning about people's coping skills and patterns and, and hopefully helping them to refine those into something that works a little bit better. Now, utilizing peer support to facilitate and foster self-confidence, that kind of big at ACPBI. We do a lot with support groups. Recently, well, I won't say that recently, but but we, we just had one big support group for a lot of years, and we decided that it would be helpful to bring in a second group that's specifically for people who are new and going through all of the adjustment stuff. Because people tend to learn as much from each other as they do from a group facilitator. So we do that, and we have still a large group of people who are past the beginning stages, but but they just really enjoy the, the group environment and the weekly support and, and encouragement of other people. So those are all of the elements or the, the things that we're trying to facilitate through oriented to vision loss. Now, family and support systems, that, that's really where I based my title, Helping Others Help Us. When I was in grad school, I did some research on how the family and support systems facilitate the adjustment to vision loss. Because I know people, they go through their own experience. I know I went through mine. But how the family engages matters an awful lot. And at the time, there just wasn't a whole lot of work and research being done in that area. I've always been interested in how other caregivers, friends, family, how they can engage because they're also uncertain as, as we were at, at the time we had to begin our adjustment. So at this time, I'm going to pause and just say, if you have any questions, I would welcome interruptions. Just raise your hand and the moderator will, will recognize you. I don't mind being stopped anywhere along the way. And I'm hoping to have some questions and answer time as I get closer to the end. But you don't have to wait. Please feel free to interrupt. I'd like to talk about a mobile. Most of you know what a mobile is. You've seen them over cribs and bassinets. But there are more elaborate mobiles that just hang, you know, in, in the corner of a room maybe. And they've always fascinated me when I could see I lost my vision at the age of 15, but mobiles are one of those things that just kind of captivated me. They, they hang by a string, and on the string is a stick, and on the end of each end of that stick is another string and more sticks and more strings. And finally, at the bottom of all of the sticks and strings are ornaments. You know, I, I always think of geometric shapes like circles and triangles and squares and and stuff like that, but it could be race cars, it could be butterflies, it could be flowers or birds, whatever. But if you think about this mobile, it's kind of neat how it just hangs there and just gradually, gently moves of its own accord. 
when there's nothing going on in the room, then there's not much going on with the mobile. In academia, they call that homeostasis. It just means that everything is in balance. But if you come along and give one of those little ornaments a flick with your finger, it will begin to spin and rock and maybe bob up and down. And when that happens, how does it affect all of the other ornaments? Of course, they're also changing and counter-changing to uh, shift and adjust. They're being displaced and everything will eventually land in a new position and hopefully the strings won't be tangled up. Um, when one person incurs a serious loss, like the, the loss of sight, that's like they're the ornament that got the flick and they're spinning out of control and everything else is trying to shift around and adjust to a new position to accommodate them as they fight their new position. And that's really how it is with family members. We're not the only ones undergoing adjustment when we lose vision. We need to empower and educate the other people in the support system on what their role is and how they can be appropriately supporting. You know, I've seen a lot of people just do everything for the person who's lost vision. Oh, you don't have to do anything. Just sit there. I'll go bring you your, your iced tea or we'll get you to the bathroom or outside, or whatever. And the person doesn't learn how to be independent. And I've seen a few people over the years kind of go the other way, the tough love side of it. Well, if you don't do it yourself, you're never going to learn. So get up and get your own tea, and get your own self out onto the back porch, and, you know, sink or swim kind of. And, and sometimes that's really hard if they haven't had all of the skills they need to accomplish a given task. So there are certain roles that can be pretty dysfunctional that, that seem to be present in a lot of families where there's some kind of adjustment going on like this. And I, I think I've got four or five of them indicated, and I'll talk a little bit about each one. You know, if, if the families are smaller, I think mostly the roles are still manifested by more than more than one role per person. But the, the first role is uh, that of the enabler. And that's the one that I was talking about where the person just is allowed to be completely catered to. They, they don't learn how to be independent because they don't have an opportunity. Other people are enabling their continuing independence. That's over the years, I've, I've been aware of a lot of that. I remember doing some couple counseling with just a, a wonderful, wonderful couple. The missus who had macular degeneration and lost vision, and her husband was retired, and, and they were both just great salt-of-the-earth people. And the husband, his idea was that, okay, I'm retired, I've got nothing but time, and you've taken such good care of us over the years, you don't have to lift a finger anymore, I'm going to do it all. And it really bothered her, but her philosophy was women are subservient, and so I'm going to listen to my husband and honor his wishes, even though they are not mine. 
you know, the sad thing was it wasn't long and, and the husband had a stroke and he was incapacitated. And and this poor lady was was really in a, a bad position because she never had an opportunity to develop her coping skills and problem-solving skills. The next role that seems to happen a lot is one that I call the hero. This is somebody who probably got a varsity letter while they were at high school. They were on the honor roll. They're climbing the ladder of success with their career. They're going to do everything right. And they're kind of like the family expert and go-to person when something needs to get done. Then there's somebody that I call the renegade. They don't feel that they can measure up to the person that's already been identified as the hero. And they don't like being compared to that person. So maybe they get attention by being uh, rebellious and kind of a troublemaker. So that's a role that that shows up in, in a lot of family systems. The next one is one that I call the hermit. And this is a person that's not great with grades and social skills, and they're not outgoing, and yet they don't want to be a troublemaker. They don't like what happens when you get in that kind of trouble. So their main goal is to just stay under the radar, not be noticed, not interact, not engage people. But there's a lot of that around. People you know, they, they want to be helpful, but they don't know what to do, and they're afraid to ask, so they, they just don't engage. And finally, there is comedian. And this is the person, and I'm wondering if you guys are recognizing these roles in your families or support system. The, the comedian is the, the wise, the one that always likes to make jokes. You know, if you can take a serious, not-so-happy situation and make a joke about it and maybe lighten the mood, that, that's kind of a, a nice way to get attention. Anyway, if you look for those roles in a lot of families, you'll, you'll see all of them. We do have a couple hands raised if you'd yep, like to take Yeah, you them. do. I was going to just say that. Patty, you can go ahead with your question. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the pros and cons of doing support groups um, via Zoom meetings as opposed to in person. That's a good question, Patty. I can do that, but let me see what the other question is. Jeffrey, you can go ahead. My name is Jeff Ricker. I have a question about the pandemic. The pandemic was very stressful for people who didn't have issues like blindness. I went completely blind just before the pandemic struck which isolated me. Uh, I have just a couple of family members around. Since you work so closely, especially with older people probably who already may have some problems with isolation, I was wondering what difficulties you noticed as the pandemic struck, what challenges people were having. I'm just very curious about that, how people dealt with losing vision, going blind, and well, the pandemic. Okay, Jeff, I'll answer your question and probably Patty's question too, because they, they have a lot to do with each other. Before the pandemic, I never even heard of Zoom. I've heard of Skype, but I never really tried hard to learn how to use it because our groups were in person. Overall, I'd have to say my preference is for in-person type of groups because there's just so much uh, benefit, I think, by in-person contact. 
and frankly, especially with a visually impaired population, uh, being new to blindness and, and new to the Zoom environment, there's a, a lot of technological challenges that don't happen when groups are in person. Now, that said, Patty's question, what are the advantages to virtual groups as opposed to in-person groups? The personal groups offer a lot of advantages, the, 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 the virtual ones. And, and the biggest one, of course, is safety. At ACBDI, all of our groups at this point are virtual just as a, a way to restrict the spread of the COVID-19 virus. We do offer in-person training, but not any large groups. So people can learn how to, to deal with the Zoom platform. Transportation's not an issue, you know, with the, the dialer right being on time, all of that kind of stuff. Plus, location's not a problem. You know, I've got people um, from as far away as Florida, Washington, D.C., participating in some of our groups. So the, the group is, is reachable to more people. And it's better than nothing. You know, there, there's less isolation in, in a group environment. But I think that not being able to see, especially just getting used to not being able to see, would be so very hard because of, you know, the social distancing. You know, is the person wearing a mask? Should I be wearing a mask? Because uh, other people are. Uh, where's the little tapes on the floor that tell me if I'm six feet away from the, the person in front of me and the other person behind me is six feet away? There's uh, just a lot of stuff like that. There are less things to do and, and places to go. And fortunately, some of that has eased up, but uh, there's still restrictions. Partly businesses aren't fully opened up yet or they aren't staffed up, but you know, a lot of people are still really concerned about the, the pandemic and the spread. So they, they choose to isolate. And uh, I, I think a virtual group for such people, you can talk about maybe how to cope with it, maybe even make some friends and have a plan to go someplace and do something together in person. But, um, you know, the isolation is a real factor and it affects a lot of people. And it affects especially, I think, people that don't have the technology skills or resources to take advantage of uh, Zoom. So, or, or, or similar platforms, you know, it could be WebEx or Google Meets or something like that. But a, a virtual interaction is way better than no interaction. It, you know, it, it could lead to some in-person type interaction. Did that you answer? have another race hand. Robert? Yes. Hi, I'm Robert, and I am a student at uh, Arizona Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And I would like to you know, speak just briefly about the groups. The group meetings that I am involved in uh, have helped me quite a lot on coping with my impairment due to I can see how others are reacting to the same 
problems that I face and you don't feel quite as alone with everything. As Frank said, it also is leading to more friendships with people in likewise situations to where I have met a few people that I'm interacting with now for various reasons. I find the group sessions to be quite good to be involved with. That's one of the reasons I'm talking right now is to be part of this convention. I don't have a lot to say, but uh, I am learning just by listening and involving myself in the program. So I would like to thank everybody for uh, being part of this. And with that, I will sign off. Thank you, Robert, and also Jeff and Patty. There are a lot of ways to classify personalities and personality types. And one way that I do it, you take a complicated thing and you make it simple. But uh, I find that one personality type is the control-centered personality. This is the one where you're very um, maybe aggressive and you get things done and maybe at the expense of stepping on a few toes. You know, it's important to realize, be aware that we need all of these types to make life happen. We need movers and shakers and doers, controllers that, that get things done. Another group I think of is the people who are more like detail-centered. These would be like your engineers and your technicians, people who are really good at designing things and uh, maybe good at math and logic and uh, also really good planners and executors. We certainly need those kinds of people. Then there are the people that are more peace-centered. They avoid conflict at all costs. They like to uh, minimize friction and, and help everybody to get along. And uh, we probably know people that we think of when we consider each of these areas. And the, the final group that I think of in this oversimplified classification is is the fun center the people they enjoy entertaining they like party they like to play jokes on people they like to have a good time so like i said i think we have elements of all four of these components and just take a second and think about yourself and, and think about which two are the most dominant in your life and which two are the, the least dominant. For me, I think I'm a peaceful person that doesn't like conflict. And I think I'm a detailed person who enjoys a good plan and its execution. I enjoy having some control, being able to get things done. I'm always looking for ways to do things that look kind of impossible at first. And um, if I rank ordered mine, be peace, detail, control, and fun. And, and most of you, it would be different. But one thing we have to keep in mind, we know ourselves, but it, it's really helpful to be able to understand where the other person in a relationship is coming from. Also, because sometimes if you have a relationship 
between controlling peaceful and peace-centered people, you know, you're, you're going to have some problems because the control person is just going to control. And the person that's peaceful, they, they want to avoid the conflict. And so they're going to let it happen. And that's only going to go for so long. And then there's going to be, uh, I've had enough of this. And there's going to be a risk. So all of these patterns interact with other people and their pattern sets. So that, that's why communication is really, really important. And it's an oversimplification. Communication is a two-way process. It, it involves sending and receiving. Think about a radio station. If you've got yourself a little radio station and you're broadcasting into a microphone, is anybody hearing it? That depends on if they, they your, your equipment is turned on and operating. And B, is their equipment turned on and tuned to the same frequency? You can talk and talk and talk and, you know, maybe communication's not happening because nobody's listening or nobody really understands what you're trying to say. So having clear lines of communication matters a lot with a family. Another really key part, but like I said, communication, sending, speaking, and listening. And, and I think it's really important to work a little harder at trying to understand the other person and maybe not so hard at trying to make yourself understood. Because when people can engage like that, then it's, it's natural that they, they feel supported and affirmed and they're, they're more willing to negotiate and see where the other person is, is coming from and their thinking. It's also really important when we communicate to be aware of our self-talk. What are we thinking? What are we telling ourselves? What are we saying about situations that we experience? How are we perceiving them? Sometimes, a lot of times, we may be a little flawed in, in our perception. And if we have a flawed perception, which you might call a misbelief, you, you could have a flawed outcome, which might be depression or anger or low self-esteem or any number of things. So what we have to do is learn how to recognize our self-talk and, and learn how to maybe reshape our perception and, and replace invalid beliefs with ones that are more realistic and sensible. One way to recognize if we have an irrational or, or off-centered belief about something, when we use words that are imperatives, like should, must, ought, you should be punctual if you respect me because I'm punctual, I was here on time and you weren't, so you don't respect me. So those kinds of imperative words that would be a sign that you need to do some, some reshaping of your perception. Words that are extremism. And by extremism, I mean words like always and never. Not sometimes, not usually, but always that's an extreme. Never is an extreme on the other side. Words like horrible, terrible, impossible, unbearable. Those are extremes. Difficult, challenging, those might be more suitably applied than impossible. 
So, so we have to make sure that we're using the right words in our self-talk so that we have a, a good perception. And of course, I've already mentioned it a couple of times. I can't. That word can't. Sometimes it's probably, you know, it could be true. Most of the time it's not. And we're imposing it uh, unnecessarily. But if we believe we can't do something, we're not even going to try. So, you know, that, that's kind of self-defeating. So if we can learn how to reshape that into how can I? You know, others have learned, how can I help? Who can help me? What can I do? Um, you know, change that can't to a can, and you'll, you'll be in a much better position. So there's a little five-step uh, way to examine beliefs, and the first one is to recognize what's the trigger, what's the activating of that. What's what's uh, what's setting the whole thing off? The straw that breaks the camel's back. And I think I'll go back and use that example about somebody was was late for a, a dinner engagement. That's the thing that tips off the event, and the the belief uh, is the second thing. We we need to examine what we believe about it. What's our current self talk? And if, if you believe that that person has to be on time, totally punctual every time, and, and if they aren't, they disrespect you, they, they don't think you're as important as they are. And, and so the, the next step is look at the consequence of, of the beliefs that you're using. How do you feel? You know, maybe you feel angry. Maybe you feel sad. Maybe you feel devalued. You have low self-esteem. Not a really good thing. So, so the next step is to kind of re-examine that wrong belief and, and replace it with one that is valid. People don't have to be punctual a hundred percent of the time to show respect. You know, they they probably will, but things happen. The bus can run late. Or they could have had a, a family emergency and they'd probably call or text and say they're running late. But the fact is, life is life and it doesn't always happen exactly when scheduled. And that doesn't mean you're any less. So if you can appreciate a situation for what it is instead of for what you feel like it is, the, the likelihood is that once you disputed that wrong belief and replaced it with the right one, that, that your self-esteem is, is not going to suffer. You're okay and, and have just as much meaningfulness and self-worth as, as anybody else. And, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't have to feel bad because somebody else has a, a tough time keeping appointments. So there are some things that are you know, I think of them as dysfunctional thinking. Um, others have called them ego defense mechanisms. And, and basically, they're just behaviors or attitudes in which we engage instead of doing what we really should to uh, own a problem and resolve it. So there, there are many. I'll, I'll just highlight a few, especially with other people in a family. Or, or support system mind reading 
you expect other people to read your mind. You know, you really know me, or care about me, know what I'm thinking. And that's just not the case. Um, but if we expect that to happen and it doesn't happen, there's um, conflicting expectations. Overgeneralization is another one. You have a bad experience. I know people who use paratransportation, I hear a lot of people complain about how bad and ineffective and indifferent it is. And I've heard people tell war stories, you know, trying to outdo each other with how horrible their transportation service is. You know, the fact of the matter is most of the people that operate those systems, they, they care a great deal about their jobs and their passengers. But if you have a bad experience, you know, say in the morning on your way to work, you, you overgeneralize and you just kind of expect the rest of the day to go the same way. You know, one person might have been unpleasant. And so you automatically assume that the next person is going to be unpleasant. And you, you approach that engagement with that level of expectation and it's just not going to have a good outcome. All or nothing thinking. People who are ambitious, maybe they over reach, well, not overreach, but overset their goals. You have a checklist that's just crazy, incredible, with a, a lot to do on it. Maybe they were successful in doing 80% of by the end of the day, but there was maybe 20% that they didn't do because they didn't give themselves enough time or, or whatever. But they, they focus on what they didn't get accomplished instead of what they did get accomplished. And so since I didn't accomplish everything, it's kind of like I accomplished nothing. Then that's not a good position to be in. Our expectations are too high for ourselves or other people. We, we just got to realize that we can do our best and sometimes that has to be acceptable. Negativism, you know, this is the, the guy that is just look for that perpetual fly in the ointment. If there's a flaw. If there's a you know a, a a problem, they're gonna find it. They're gonna look at the negative side of it. Maybe they're going to be the first one to point out negative things that other people have said. Catastrophizing and minimizing. Catastrophizing is really kind of a frustrating thing where people just make a mountain out of a molehill. They'll take a relatively insignificant problem. And they'll just blow it out of proportion, and it's a huge problem. And, and you're looking at all of the things that could possibly go wrong and expecting that they will. And, and minimizing is just the opposite. It's making a molehill out of a mountain. You know, you've got a big, serious, critical problem that needs attention right now, and you don't address it. You wait too long. You, you put it off to see how it plays out. And, and both of those are kind of negative ways to think about resolving problems. Um, reasoning with emotions rather than logic and practicality. This is a, a recipe for a disaster. We have emotions and we should be aware of them. They give us a lot of good information. And plus, they're just pleasant to experience. But emotions change because they're reactive. They go up and they go down, depending on what's going on in our world and how we perceive it. But logic, that's more of a steady, you know, it doesn't matter how we feel. 
And it's just better to make decisions based on what you know, especially far-reaching decisions than making decisions based on emotion. I'm going to stop and see if anybody has any questions. Currently, there are no raised hands. Okay. Well, I've got a little bit of information here I'd like to present on conflict resolution. You know, when you're relating with other people and it could be with families, members, friends, and could be just with people that you engage with on a regular basis. I have some roadblocks to resolution. In other words, these are the things you don't want to do, things you want to avoid because they're going to take a conflicting situation and make it worse. Acting on emotions. I was just talking about that. You know, if you do something based on how you feel, you could do serious harm in a relationship if you make a decision based on anger. Another thing you, you don't want to do is avoid confrontation of sensitive subjects. Sometimes, you know, though it may be a sensitive subject, people just really need to hear what you think and feel about what's going on. So you, you don't want to avoid that, sweep it under the rug and not deal with it. Dominating conversation. We all know people that just love the sound of their voice. And earlier I was talking about the importance of listening and trying hard to understand where the other person's come from. This person's doing the opposite. They're so busy talking and trying to make a point that when they're not talking, they're thinking about what they're going to say when they get a chance to start talking again. So you, you don't want to dominate conversation. I've heard it said that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. And, and I think there's some wisdom with that. Blaming others rather than admitting fault is another thing we don't want to do. You know, it's so important to own our shortcomings and, and try to overcome them and overcome the challenges set before us. And blaming others for things that we can control this is not going to solve the problem. It's just going to make it worse. And you do have a raise hand really quick. Nora, you can go ahead. My question is, is everything opened up or starting to open up at the center for the blind? Okay. Are things opening up at the center? They are opening slowly. We have some recreation stuff open right now. But if you want to get some more information about that, you can call the center and talk to April or Tony, and they can give you a list of the classes that we have in person as well as virtual. How much does it cost to join virtually? Yeah, we, we've got virtual groups and classes, and, and we do have some in-person kind of stuff going on too right now. Well, that's good. Thank you. You're welcome. Criticizing others is another thing you don't want to do. That's usually not the way to solve a problem. You know, we want to look at solutions and not, not just finding fault. Not letting go of past hurts. That's definitely a thing to avoid. People who keep score, you know, where there's no forgiveness. It's just really hard to work beyond a situation like that and find a solution. And sharing negative ideas of others. Uh, I, I kind of touched on that already. But I'm just going to share seven keys to conflict resolution. I'm not really going to talk about them. I'm just going to go through my list. Clearly and carefully identify the problem that you want to work on. You know, you, you both have to be talking about the same thing. Agree to work through the conflict until resolution is achieved. 
if you're going to start working on this thing, you're, you're, you're going to make a commitment to see it through to the successful conclusion. Express your feelings about the issue. Don't just sit there and go, oh, that sounds fine when you really have an objection. Uh, share what you want as an outcome. You know, okay, let's talk about this problem. Here's, here's what I'd like to see happen. You know, that, that's part of the resolution. Generate and discuss realistic options. You know, options that aren't realistic don't count. Once you've chosen your option, commit to action. What are we going to do to facilitate this and bring it about? And then evaluate the effectiveness of what you've done. You know, just maybe in a month, circle back and say, is this still good? Is what we're doing working? Anyway, I do believe I'm out of time. And if you have questions in the future, just give me a call at the center or shoot me an email. Thank you for your time. This is Lindsay again. Thank you so much, Frank, for all of that. Very, very helpful information. Thank you for being here today. Next uh, thing we will hear from is, um, I'm, forgive me if I pronounce your name wrong. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Lily Vubogan. It looks like something different. I'm sorry. Lily Vubogan of the Southern Arizona chapter is now going to talk to us about her experience with being part of SAZCB. Hi, everyone. Um, I'd like to thank the Arizona Council of the Blind for inviting me here today to speak. I am a fairly new member to uh, Arizona Council of the Blind. And so I wanted to talk about my background a little bit and how I got involved. 13 years ago, I, May of 2009 to be exact, is when I started having some vision loss. I was working as a pharmacist during the time, and I uh, found that I could not see the mouse cursor anymore, and I was starting to see flashing lights. And I was diagnosed with autoimmune retinal dystrophy. So as the condition progressed, um, I eventually started disability and got involved in the disability community. Not right away. It took seven, almost eight years. And during that time, I did not meet another blind person. I was pretty closed off. I was uh, reliant strictly on friends and family to do everything, transportation, groceries, um, my social life started dwindling quite a bit. And so I then got involved with the Arizona Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Phoenix. Um, we just heard from Frank Vance, who's from there. And I was in the social rec program. From that point on, I became um, more confident. I found people who were like me, who were going through similar things in life, similar emotional backlash from our vision loss journey. And so as I got more confident and uh, started building on my blindness skills, I went through comprehensive blindness training at the Foundation for Blind Children. And fast forward several years, we get hit with the pandemic. Everyone is shut down and closed off from all human contact. And during that time, got married and moved to Tucson. Again, meet another blind person for almost a full year. And so while in Tucson, I got connected to the Southern chapter of AZCB and went to several social gatherings, have done some of the Zoom meetings online. And again, I'm feeling that confidence and feeling that 
part of me where I need to socialize, need to be with people who are like me and have found a family again, a community of people who I can relate to and speak to who have things that in common and who can have a part in my life and I can have a part hopefully in their lives as well. And so thank everyone today for having me be involved in. I'm very happy to be a part of this community and this family. Thank you. All right. So we're going to have a little dinner break. And then at 5.30, join us for Who Wants to Be a Billion Dollar? No, just kidding. <laughs> Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Hosted by me and Kayla. So we'll see you on the game night link at 5.30.